am your host, Jacko Zwetslut. Don't forget you can download or subscribe to our podcast not only at iTunes, but also Stitcher, SoundCloud, YouTube, and other podcast platforms. Also, you can save $50 off your NK News subscription by using the code PODCAST at the checkout. Now on to our studio guest, Dr. Daniel Pinkston. He is a lecturer in international relations at Troy University. Previously, he was the Northeast Asia Deputy Project Director for the International Crisis Group here in Seoul and the Director of the East Asia Non-Proliferation Program at the James Martin Center for Non-Proliferation Studies. He has published several scholarly articles on Korean security affairs, including North Korea's missile program. In a previous professional life, he served as a Korean linguist in the U.S. Air Force. Dr. Pinkston, welcome. You wrote a chapter titled The Asymmetric Strategies of the DPRK in the book The Logic of Irregular War, Asymmetry and America's Adversaries, which was published by Roman and Littlefield in November last year. Tell us, what's your main thesis in that chapter? Well, that chapter was part of an edited volume edited by Island Berman with the American Foreign Policy Council in Washington, D.C., and there was a thematic chapter and a conclusion, but the four uh, main chapters were on Russia, China, Iran, and North Korea. I did the North Korean chapter. The volume focused on asymmetric capabilities, asymmetric warfare, and how adversaries or potential adversaries of the United States might employ asymmetric capabilities in conflict. Now, when you say asymmetric capabilities, that's, some, that's a phrase we often hear in relation to guerrilla warfare or terrorism, for example? That's right. It's been around since warfare has been around. And whenever there is a, a gap in capabilities, a weaker opponent will look for ways and methods to offset those superior capabilities of their adversaries. So guerrilla warfare, other types of uh, uh, tactics that have been around for a very, very long time. Uh, these days, of course, weapons of mass destruction, cyber warfare, those types of capabilities are at the disposal of uh, adversaries that might wish to challenge or take take on uh, stronger opponents, such as the United States. It sounds almost like a scaled-up version of judo, using your opponent's strength and weight against him. Right. Well, I think it's just uh, human nature and through competition, superior strategies are going to win out or they're going to be uh, weaker strategies will be eliminated through that competition. So it's been around for ever since warfare, as I said, in the American experience during the American Revolutionary War, for example, the colonies were very weak compared to the superpower Britain at that time. But the Revolutionary Army under the leadership of George Washington, of course, they used uh, guerrilla tactics against the, the superior British forces. We we saw what happened in the Vietnam War, for example. Technologically, superior United States and its um, allies could not coerce the Viet Cong and the North Vietnamese into accepting the terms of, of the United States and South Vietnamese. You know, this is this is something that all uh, participants in warfare will will try to exploit if they can. Now, in this chapter, uh, do you well, what's the balance between looking at the past and trying to predict potential outcomes in the future? Well, I can't predict the future, but certainly um, we have to look at the the capabilities of certain adversaries. And the editor, I would say that the editor of the volume to maintain some consistency, edited it in a way maybe that I would not have done to maintain that comparative perspective. For example, how the South Korean military and South Korean strategists and also North Korean strategists and the Korean People's Army, what they consider asymmetric capabilities and something that they focus on does not receive as much attention. For example, artillery and um, underground facilities and caves and so forth. That's very important for uh, the North Koreans. And that was something that was edited out 
mm. of this volume because it didn't fit with the the theme of the um, of the book. But in general, things like cyber warfare, electronic warfare, nuclear weapons, ballistic missiles, cruise missiles, unmanned aerial vehicles, uh, those types of things are are weapon systems that can offset uh, superior capabilities. Now, I want to come back to some of those technologies you mentioned a little bit later, but uh, one section in that chapter is about the DPRK state objectives. And I think that's probably an important underlying fact or understanding when we're talking about what North Korea wants in any negotiation. So could you outline what are the uh, DPRK state objectives? Well, the DPRK is the state and the state is basically an agent of the party. Everything is under the control and guidance of the party. The Korean Workers' Party seeks to maintain uh, security, maintain its uh, system. The party bylaws proclaim that the Korean Workers' Party is Kim Il-sung's and Kim Jong-il's party. So it's basically a family dictatorship. Uh, the party seeks to uh, complete the revolution in the South, to uh, consolidate the revolutionary achievements and gains of socialism in the North and complete the revolution in the South. I think it's it's pretty clear what their objectives are. If you look at their DPRK constitution, which is a snapshot of where things are, it's kind of a proclamation to the outside world where they stand and what they seek to achieve. The constitution states that the territory of the DPRK is all of the Korean peninsula and its surrounding islands, which is similar to the Republic of Korea constitution as well. So, yes, I mean, uh, unifying Korea on its terms, Mm. that's the ultimate objective, of course. Now, if I recall correctly, you didn't use the word unification explicitly in the article. Is there a reason you avoided using that word? Well, I think it's better for people to draw their own conclusions, to look at the the literature in that, because if I state it outright, people will read other meanings into that. They begin to extrapolate from that point when I would encourage people to uh, look at the literature, look at the party, look how it's organized, look at the principles, look at the ideology, look at those things, and you can draw your own conclusions. Yeah, I think it's pretty clear to any visitor to North Korea that, you know, completion of the uh, of the revolution, finishing the project of unification started by Kim Il-sung is a a constant theme, slogan, it's everywhere in all the posters, the art, the literature, etc., isn't it? Yes, that's correct. And, and I think it's much more of an urgent issue in North Korea because whether it's true or not, I think people um, believe it. The state literature and the media proclaim that their, their problems and difficulties are a result of national division. So uh, many of the difficulties that people face in North Korea, I think the overwhelming majority of them believe that if the country were to be unified, then they could resolve all of those problems. Now, there are some academics in the North Korea Watchers community these days who would say that unification, while still a a trope, a symbol, is not actually something that North Korea desires. They would say that that's, you know, people who say that that's still the case are living in the past, that North Korea has changed, that it realizes it cannot absorb South Korea, it can't possibly deal with all the liberalized, democratic South Korean people. I I just fundamentally disagree. That's the whole raison d'etre, the identity. Of, of the party longing for uh, national unification, if it were possible, of course. I think there are a number of obstacles and that can be prevented. But if that were possible, of, of course, they would uh, seek that objective and, and uh, do it. Now, you just mentioned a few minutes ago, and in your chapter, you talked about various new kinds of technologies, uh, cyber attacks, electromagnetic pulse, unmanned aerial vehicles, and so on. Could you just sort of briefly walk us through uh, North Korea's capacity in those areas and where, where you think the biggest threat lies? 
Rogers? Well, people can um, pick up the, the publication, of course, and look at the details. But fundamentally, what I argue is that in a kind of Clausewitzian sense that we have to look at the political objectives and then the military, diplomatic, political capabilities, the soft power capabilities, propaganda capabilities, and so forth. Those instruments that are at the disposal of this, the state and the leadership, they will employ those instruments in a number of com- uh, combinations to seek their political objectives, to kind of move the, the ball down the field in that direction, even if they can't uh, achieve all of those objectives quickly and easily. So, uh, force of course, is one instrument uh, that the leadership will will look to if the conditions are right and the situation is right. Um, and if they could capitalize by using those capabilities, they they would, of course. And I think they would use it in a combination. So when we, we can't look at the, the capabilities in a vacuum. So electronic warfare and cyber warfare, for example, along with, um, you know, a biological weapons attack or a missile attack and these types of things, they would use them in a, a combination to further their goals or to respond to an attack uh, against them, for example. Just to pick out one that I find interesting, an electromagnetic pulse. How could North Korea set off one in South Korea and what would be the long-term effects of that? Well, the easiest way to do that is to uh, detonate a, a nuclear bomb if you have a nuclear bomb. But in that case, electromagnetic pulse is the least of your worries, isn't it? Yes. Well, if they they detonated in uh, low Earth orbit hmm. or in outer space, for example, then the EMP pulse could fry out the electronics and uh, so forth, systems that are not hardened against that type of attack. But I think that would be crossing a, a threshold. There, there there are other EMP weapons. It's very um, high tech and sophisticated technology. It's very difficult to um, employ those types of weapons. I think there's a lot of um, misunderstanding and exaggeration of those weapons. You know, the, the, the distance, the amount of pulse that could be sustained and so forth. It's a difficult technology mm. and it's very uh, secretive. Some countries, their scientists are working on those technologies, including here in South Korea, as I understand. I think that's more of a futuristic type weapon and it's more in the technological development stage at this point. Uh, could you tell us what is lawfare? Lawfare is using the, the law and international law in particular to um, further your political objectives. So using courts, using the law or blocking measures in the UN, for example, filing lawsuits and so forth to, to further your, your political aims and objectives. In terms of international law, it's different from domestic law. And most people... I'm not a lawyer, but as I understand it, most international lawyers or lawyers who who, uh, specialize in international law agree that UN Security Council resolutions are part of international law. And in terms of what constitutes a threat to international peace and stability is completely uh, subject to interpretation. And whatever the UN Security Council decides, then that is the case. So the UN Security Council has determined that and has decided that uh, North Korean ballistic missile launches and nuclear weapons tests are a threat to international peace and stability. North Korea disagrees. They've signed the Outer Space Treaty, which says that all states have the right to peaceful access to outer space without discrimination of any kind. But they they stop their quote right there because the the treaty continues and says, and in accordance with international law. Mm. 
Uh, now, you've also written another chapter in an, a different book. Uh, this chapter is called Kimism in Songun, North Korea, the third generation of the Kim dynasty, and that's in the edited volume National Security, State Centricity, and Governance in East Asia by Paul Grave Macmillan. Uh, is it later this year? It's not out yet, is it? It's, well, it should already be out. I have a, a copy of it, so I, I think it's already in print. Um, we finished it up late last year around December. And that's edited by our mutual friend, Brendan Howe. Yes, Brendan Howe was the editor of that. It's on authoritarian politics in, in uh, Asia. Now, Songun, we, we see that a lot in the media. It's this uh, military first slogan that we hear and see also in North Korean propaganda. But could you give our listeners a quick summary of what Songun is and how it's employed in North Korea? Well, the term first appeared in the mid-1990s when North Korea was suffering from a famine. It was in the form of Songun uh, Chongchi is how they first started to use the word, which is uh, military first politics. Chongchi is politics. And it's not politics in in how we would interpret the word, but it's more like administration. So there's no competitive or pluralistic politics in North Korea. Everything's under the guidance of the Korean Workers' Party. So it's more like... Um, what we would uh, call public administration. So it's the way of uh, governance during a crisis and during this famine period. So it was during a time when the party was decimated. They were facing internal threats and perceived to be facing external threats. Is this the arduous march period? Yes, the arduous march period. So Kim Jong-il, through his work with the military, his first position was commander of the KPA. And, he, and then he was head of the, the National Defense Commission. And he had the authority to appoint uh, senior officials and uh, general officers in the KPA. So he had control of the military and he began to look to the military for you know public administration purposes and for for guidance and to weather through this crisis period so then later about 10 years after that or so the Chongji dropped off and they just started referring to Sungun and they would even use that word in English and it would just appear in the middle of English text right which must have looked very uh, puzzling to people who did not know what the the word was English sure. speakers and then later you know a few years ago five six seven eight years ago or so within the past 10 years they began to use it in uh, terms of Sangun Sasang. Sasang is ideology or thought. It seemed at the end of Kim Jong il's life, they began to use the term as an ideology to put him on the level of his father as a great socialist thinker and, and uh, leader. So is it supposed to be equivalent to, in, in terms of rank, to Juche Sasang, Juche ideology or Juche thought? I think so. I mean, this is something that's, it doesn't replace it. It's like a supplement? Yeah, it's like it's like a, a supplement. So what, one of the reasons I think North Korea has been able to survive or the Kim family regime has been able to survive is they've been very adept hmm. at modifying slightly the ideology and the indoctrination that is channeled through the party. So from the very beginning, when Kim Il-sung came to power, he was a, an anti-Japanese guerrilla seeking liberation from Japanese colonial rule. So when he was you know, thrust into power by the Soviets, and of course, he would not almost certainly would not have been in that position without Soviet assistance and support. He began to diverge immediately from this traditional Marxist-Leninist uh, thought with support and briefings and everything from the Soviets. He kind of, you know, supported Marxism 
Leninism nominally, but he had these other ideas about um, nationalism, anti-colonialism. So he began to diverge and he incorporated these other ideas into the state ideology. And of course, Juche thought came on board officially in 1955 with a speech that he, he gave, but it didn't really take on the amount of importance and become part of the personality cult until the mid-1960s or so. Now, going back to Songun, I remember I was uh, in North Korea in 2010 and visiting a, uh, a North Korean guest house in Nampo. And there was a, a text that was uh, affixed to the wall that told a story about how the late Kim Jong-il, as an 18-year-old man, was visiting the Seoul Ryugyongsu Guards 105th Tank Division in 1960 on a uh, military inspection with his father. And this is supposedly where he thought up the Songun idea on the spot. But you're saying that that's a fiction? It's untrue? Well, I think it's true that he did go on that inspection and that tank unit is a real tank unit. Kim Jong-un has gone there. But as far as the, the kind of um, historical revisionism, the propaganda and agitation department has been very adept at this and going back and, and building um, narratives and um, stories. So it was not apparent, at least the word or the terminology was not around at that time. I think it was pretty clear in the, in the 60s already the Kims, Kim Il-sung and Kim Jong-il were focusing on the, the military. Kim Il-sung came out of this guerrilla background. And if people go back and, and look at um, Marxist writings, what Karl Marx wrote about, the idea was that once socialist revolution is, is accomplished, then all of those security forces in the military would be obsolete. They're not needed. So Marx viewed those institutions as necessary for maintaining you know, these class divisions. So the ruling class needed these instruments to suppress the underclass and yeah. this, under capitalism, the, the workers. So in fact, the, the Soviets after the, the Soviet revolution, I mean, they had these big debates about, do we need the military and the police? Should we just disband them? Because now we've, you know, the workers have been freed. They've lost their chains and we've, uh, you know, overthrown the, the, the capitalists. But of course, that was not the case. And in fact, the very opposite became true. The um, focus and investment on the military and security forces was quite extreme, in fact. Now, we were just talking before about how uh, Songun might be uh, a complement or a supplement to uh, to Juche thought. To what extent has the basic ideology of North Korea changed or remained the same under its three generations of Kim leaders? Well, it's been slightly modified or transformed according to the times. And I think this is an, in an innovation from uh, the North Koreans. So it hasn't changed fundamentally, but on the margins, they've made some adjustments to fit the time. So Kim Il-sung was, of course, looking to create some space and to gain or obtain some degrees of freedom from his superpower uh, patrons. So that's this this sense of independence or, or juche was important to him. You know, small, weak state having uh, greater independence in the international system. But things fundamentally changed during Kim Jong-il's era with the collapse of the Soviet Union and mm. the, the socialist states elsewhere. Their narrative and uh, Kim Jong-il's supposed you know, contribution to this is that you know, militarism and a strong military was something that was missed. And only the great genius of you know, Kim Il-sung and Kim Jong-il could, could notice this. And it's the thing that Marx and Lenin and Gorbachev and all of these other people missed. And that is that you need a strong uh, military force to complete the revolution, to consolidate uh, 
of the revolution. And they claim that this is new. The the North Koreans were not the first to discover militarism. You know, the Mongols, uh, Napoleon, the Nazis, many um, regimes and leaders have um, stumbled upon militarism in the past. They're yeah. certainly not the first. Have there been any... Uh modifications or original twist under Kim Jong-un? Or has he basically just taken over the same ideology of his father? Some of it has been a, a continuation. I think he's tried to modernize the the system and to bring the, the party and the party institutions up to date. Uh, I think he's probably been a little more relaxed or comfortable with some liberal type of um, policy or relaxation of, of um, some of the controls on the economic side. That's not new either. I mean, looking at all of those systems, they've gone through periods with the collectivization of agriculture and the, the collectivization of, of um, industry and so forth. And then the information problems in a centrally planned economy are enormous and there's allocation inefficiencies and things like that. And so inevitably black markets emerge and people begin trading parts and inputs and things and fuel and all of this stuff. People start doing side jobs to earn extra income and so forth. Inevitably, you'll see these reformers like Khrushchev come along and others and they'll kind of acquiesce and, and accept this black market activity. So they'll, they'll liberalize and they'll be termed a reformer or they'll implement some reforms and that will give some boosts in the economic efficiencies. And then you'll see they'll go through crackdowns. We saw that through Kim Jong-il's period. I think he was much more nervous about the market. Kim Jong-un is maybe a little bit more comfortable with that. Some people claim that you know North Korea has completely been marketized, but it's marketization from below. It's black markets. It hasn't been fully embraced by the state where China has for the most part. And certainly there is a formal state sector and planned economy that, that um, continues. And I think the, the goal or the objective is to make a socialist planned economy work. Also in your chapter, Kimism in Songun, Korea, you wrote about the 10 great principles of the establishment of the unitary ideology system. We don't often hear or read about them in popular books or press on North Korea. So where do they come from and how important are they, these 10 principles, to the lives of everyday North Korean citizens? That's right. In, in uh, the West, in constitutional democracies, the constitution is considered the highest law of the, the land. That's how it is in the United States. Uh, I'm American, so I'm very familiar with that and was socialized to know that and believe that. And people will extrapolate from that position and think that's the case in North Korea. It's absolutely not the case. The, the, the constitution can be revised very easily. The presidium of the SPA can meet. It's a small group of uh, people and they can act as the whole SPA at any time when the SPA is not in session, they can just change the constitution. So the party can just issue that directive. Some of those uh, leaders who are dual-hatted, like Kim Jong-nam, for example, then he could walk across the street, call a meeting of four, five, six people, and they can just declare a new constitution. And they've done this a couple of times, haven't they? Yeah, yeah. So there have been more recent uh, changes of the constitution. You know, the first was in 48, and then it wasn't amended until 72. And then in 98, and then more recently, we've seen more frequent uh, amendments. But the 10 great principles, those are what people basically have to remember. There are sub-principles in there. It's kind of mind-numbing if you, you read it. But as far as what actually impacts the everyday life of every North Korean, they couldn't tell you the about the Constitution, where, say, an American, they could tell you about the Bill of Rights and yeah. different articles of the Constitution. North Koreans probably have um, no clue about that, but they do know about the Ten Principles. And basically, it's a, 
a guideline and it's, you know, encapsulates and um, expands upon the two basic ideas of democratic centralism and dictatorship of the proletariat. So basically obedience, obedience to the leader and the party. These principles were written by Kim Yong-ju, who is Kim Il-sung's younger brother. Mm who's still alive. Um, he was born in ni- September 1920. So he's 97. And if he makes it till September, he'll be 98. He wrote those in the mid-60s, around 66 or so. There was discussion at that time who Kim Il-sung's successor would be. And his uh, brother was considered you know, the most likely successor. But then Kim Jong-il took those 10 principles about a year later and really pushed those as he was very instrumental in building up and establishing the personality cult around his father, which, you know, in a Confucian sense, it fits all of the, you know, standards of filial piety and all of that. Mm. But of course, it was very self-serving as well, because if his father was so great, then of course, he was the natural successor. So, Kim Jong-il was very ambitious uh, when he was implementing those programs. So, is the centrality of the Kim family a big theme in these 10 great principles? Because you you mentioned obedience. And so, obviously, if you or it seems to me obvious, if you put the Kim family as central and you stress the importance of obedience, then it can only be obedience to the Kim family. Absolutely. Well, the principles, they do mention uh, Kim Il-sung by name. It mentions Kim Il-sung and and, uh, Kim Il-sung thought and and, uh, Juche thought and how you are supposed to follow this unconditionally and implement it in your your life and your work and and everything else. All right. Moving on to a a more general question. How do we know anything about North Korea? It's a hard place to get information out of. Is it? I guess there's there's more information than um, there used to be. I don't think that's an excuse uh, not to know. I think there's quite a bit of information, actually, and you can spend a lot of time looking at the the information that's available in the the public domain. What's the role of intelligence agencies of different countries in expanding our knowledge of the internal workings and dynamics of North Korea? And how reliable are they? Well, of course, different national intelligence agencies have different capabilities. So they have different ways and and, um, means and sources and methods in terms of collecting information. Some have greater capabilities than others. Some have very little, if any at all. And then, of course, after they uh, collect their raw data and information, then they have to analyze the information. So, different intelligence agencies are going to have different capabilities in terms of analysis. And then, when they feed that uh, finished or polished intelligence analysis to policymakers, then it depends on what they do with it, of course, uh, how they interpret and how they decide to act uh, or not, or if there is any actionable intelligence. Are there any agencies that you would find consistently, consistently more right or wrong than others? Um, that's hard to say, and I'm not in, in any intelligence service, so I would just be speculating, of course. Even within um, the intelligence community in, in, say, one country, let's say here in South Korea, where you, know, you have the the National Intelligence Service, of course, and you have the military intelligence and you have the Ministry of Unification and other agencies that are collecting information and feeding it into, you know, analytical shops. So even even within one shop or one office, say that maybe is looking at a particular problem or issue or a narrow uh, and specific problem, you might have individuals on that team that have a difference of opinion in their analysis. And so then as that funnels, you know, towards the the higher levels of the institution or the different agencies, you can have differences. And then, of course, when you compare different intelligence agencies or different intelligence services and communities from different countries, of course, you can have some different interpretations or different outcomes in their analysis. 
It would be remiss of me not to ask you what you expect to see or hope to see from the upcoming inter-Korean summit between President Moon Jae-in and Kim Jong-un to take place on April 27th. There's a, a long list of agenda items that they wish to address, of course, for President Moon or any South Korean president. Some of the humanitarian issues are of uh, utmost urgency. Uh, separated family members, you know, an emotional humanitarian issue that I think on the outside, many people do not uh, appreciate or understand the how serious that issue is. And there are domestic pressures for the president to address those. And I think, of course, from his own convictions, any South Korean president would want to um, address those issues. On the security side, I think there's a, a list of issues and confidence building measures and so forth that can be discussed. You know, the, the hotline or or communication channel that's been been established or or has been established between the the leaders to avoid any uh, misperception or misinterpretation of activities to defuse any um, crisis situation is a positive development. Um, other things such as North Korea signing the Chemical Weapons Convention. We've seen um, elsewhere in the world some of the concerns with the recent current events on chemical weapons. So um, maybe that's something that the, the president would like to, to mention. Also, North Korea's, I guess, it's a failure to come into compliance with UN Security Council Res Re Resolution 1540, which is binding and requires all states to draft legislation and to ensure that no WMD is transferred to terrorist groups. Now, this is something that North Korea says it abides by anyway. I've mentioned this to some North Korean officials, and they said, well, of course, we don't do that. And I said, oh, well, I I take your word for it. In that case, it should be very simple to sign, it. To sign yeah. and, and to, to um, submit the documentation for... 1540. And there's a committee at the UN that will help or assist them do that. So those are some things that could show sincerity on the, the North Korean side. Also, there are excellent inter-Korean agreements already. The basic mm. agreement from 91 and the joint uh, declaration on the denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula from 92. These are, are good agreements. If North Korea is serious about reconciliation and coexistence, then they could um, restate their uh, willingness and commitment to these previous agreements, and also the uh, September 2005 Statement of Principles in the, the six-party talks, denuclearization as well. So there are a number of you know past agreements that uh, could be revisited, and we could test um, North Korea's willingness to fulfill their commitments under these previous agreements. To what extent do you think Trump's bellicose rhetoric and other forms of maximum pressure have brought Kim Jong-un to the negotiating table at this time? Well, it's consistent with their past strategy and efforts anyway. So they're always willing to engage in dialogue or talks as long as it's on their terms. So what Kim Jong-un is thinking or why they um, decided this, maybe they thought it was a good time. Maybe they're looking for sanctions relief. Maybe they're comfortable with the progress in their weapons development programs. We'll see. And of course, we'll, we'll learn more after uh, the summit takes place. Do you believe that there'll be a summit in May between U.S. President Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un? Uh, will Trump still be president in May? I don't know. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll see. Assuming that that meeting does go ahead, what do you hope to come from it? So it, it doesn't mean that it's, um, you know, it won't be effective or can't be effective, but that's not the end of the process. So the way I see this, there are a number of um, 
issues and, and issues of multilateral concern, of international concern that can be addressed, but for them to be resolved, they cannot be resolved in a two or three hour meeting between um, senior officials. So the best is that they can agree to an agenda, a hierarchy of issues, and give their approval to the working level specialists to go then go on and tackle those issues and reach an agreement. An analogous case would be, say, uh, Jimmy Carter meeting with Kim Il-sung mm-hmm. in 1994. So, you know, people can go back and look on YouTube if they're not old enough to remember that. And you can see, you know, Jimmy Carter comes on CNN and says, uh, we have an agreement. And, um, you know, Kim Il-sung's agreed to freeze his, his uh, facilities and, and uh, enter in some denuclearization process. So then what happened was the the working level officials had months of, of talks before they were able to come up with the agreed framework that was signed in October. So that took about, you know, four or five months to reach that agreement. And of course, it's much more complex and complicated now. You don't just, you know, reach all of the, uh, you know, details of very complicated agreement in a few hours of uh, meetings. Yeah, you make a good point there, that basically a summit between the two top leaders is just one step along a very long way. Right. So maybe if, if it can give the, the confidence and trust of the working level officials to bargain in good faith, and they've been given their task to seek the, the broad outlines of this uh, cooperative arrangement, then that can uh, be very positive development. But of course, we have to wait till the end of the process and not assess it at the beginning. All right. Well, that's a good place to leave it. Thank you again to this week's studio guest, Dr. Daniel Pinkston, for coming on the NK News podcast. Don't forget, ladies and gentlemen, you can listen to all of our shows as well as read full bios and show notes on our website, www.nknews.org. NK News is the leading repository of North Korean research, news and analysis, and we hope to see you there. And you can send feedback, comments, questions or guest suggestions to podcast at nknews.org. Our podcast, as always, is produced by Arias Dare and facilitated by Chad O'Carroll and Christina Lee. Lastly, a reminder that you can save $50 off your NK News subscription by using the word podcast at the checkout. Thanks for listening.